Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi everyone, this is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Bake Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their zero to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in-house developers, and you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days, no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget. Or we finish the project at no extra costs. Contact us at onestop.io. Let's talk about your SaaS project today. Today we have co-founder of Archera, Aaron Kana. Archera is a company that uses machine learning to help organizations automate and de-risk their cloud strategies. The mission of Archera is to put control back into the hands of developers and business leaders so they can use the resources they need when they need them while substantially bringing down their costs. Aaron will be sharing with us how he came up with the idea for his MVP, how he funded it, and grew it from zero to 30,000 MRR and beyond. How are you today, Aaron? I'm doing so well. Thank you for having me, Jordy. Great. Um, so can you give us a, a, um, a quick rundown on what Acheta does specifically for your customers? Like what problem are you, are you solving for your customers? Yeah, so, you know, actually just to, to give you a little bit of background, my, um, you know, my history is I was actually, I like to say, born in the cloud. So my first job ever was at uh, Microsoft Azure out here in Seattle. Um, and, you know, I was really detailed in how customers were actually purchasing servers and moving them from an OpEx to a CapEx model. And a big part of that has to do with the long-term contracts they purchase for different resources on the cloud. You know, after my time at Azure, I actually went to AWS and launched a number of services, including the SageMaker service. Uh, and through that experience, I saw with the great variety of different services, not just you know compute instances, but you know things like managed services for machine learning, uh, in-memory database services, etc. There was a massive variety of different cloud resources that any given project needed. And for all those resources, there were a variety of different long-term contracts and helping customers actually plan out which of those contracts they needed to purchase over time and then actually get the structure in place within their team to manage things like forecasts, uh, alerting and governance, financial governance, uh, to really help them ensure that the plans they're putting in place are getting executed and the contract mix that they're purchasing from the cloud vendors for all of their different resources, you know, one-year contracts, three-year contracts, less flexible, more flexible with some money up front, those were all optimized against the plans, the forecasts, uh, and the business projections that customers wanted. It's an incredibly complex problem. And what we seek to do is actually automate that whole life cycle, change mm -hmm. the uh, way that customers are managing this from going back and forth between management teams and finance teams and engineering teams and Excel spreadsheets to try and you know understand costs so they can predict cost and then optimize cost 
uh, to actually make that whole thing automated where you can actually do it in many cases in four hours a quarter instead of four hours a week of wasting time and going back and forth. Uh, so we try and give customers the ability to automatically get things like visibility and tag management right out of the box uh, and mm -hmm. then automatically get things like forecasts uh, and budget plans uh, derived from that mixed with their business projections. Uh, actually govern against those plans financially and push responsibility down onto the teams who are using resources to make sure things are not being over-provisioned and they're met meeting the plan. And then finally, taking all of that information and all of that operational enablement and using it to automatically create these uh, commitment plans that really help them drive down costs without needing any engineering resources or engineering changes. You know, purely this is based on financial engineering, which is really what we're helping customers do in an automated fashion. Uh, and then to even put you know, more emphasis on how different the approach is, we're so confident that uh, actually automating and changing this process gives us a high degree of predictability on uh, committing to resources so high, in fact, that we actually guarantee to customers if they don't use those commitments, we will buy them right back and take that fixed cost off their books. So we will actually, you know, in, in a sense, essentially sell insurance against the plans mm -hmm. that we are executing for customers because this difference in strategy from you know Excel spreadsheets back and forth to automated through our system makes it so highly predictable uh, that we're really able to give those strong guarantees and, and okay. in doing so unlock really uh, lucrative and interesting net new strategies for customers. Okay, that's great. So let's take a step back because that was quite a lot of information. So take a step back. It sounds like you were working in Azure and AWS and sort of some kind of developer role or DevOps or something like that. Where did you... Were you working as a consultant when you found the problem or, or did you find the problem or how did you come up with when you first discovered this problem? Yeah. So, I mean, at, at Azure, I was actually uh, on the a developer on the Fabric Fundamentals team. So I had worked a lot on actually the internals and the pricing of uh, things like VM. So I really understood the vendor side of the problem. When I went to AWS, I was actually one of the leads who was launching services under SageMaker. Um, which was just coming together at the time. I was actually part of a small startup before that was brought in to, to grow that team. We were eight people when we were brought in, and, excuse me, 800 by the time I left. So uh, really got the whole uh, experience kind of end-to-end launching products, validating them with customers there. And this is really where I saw the, the problem in its most acute phase when we were going to large customers who had all their data on AWS saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could give you machine learning tools right out of the box to process that data that's already sitting there on you know s3 or other storage services and the customers would say look you know mr aws i can't even manage the commodity hardware i have right now i can't even predict what my cpu memory uh kind of machine usage is going to look like next month why would i turn on highly unpredictable highly expensive you know five dollar an hour plus gpus to try and you know chase this red dragon of machine learning when I can't even manage and get a handle on the resources I'm using today. So I saw that problem, you know, fairly acutely in terms of just cost management and then the time mm -hmm. and effort that was spent and, you know, in many ways wasted trying to do this manually within organizations when I was at AWS. And actually I'd used a lot of the existing tools and partners and consultants to try and solve the problem for these customers. Yeah. But what I saw was those all leaned in on the same set of old and kind of 
in my mind, really antiquated and inefficient best practices of trying to build partnerships and these manual processes and meetings between the team that's governing the spend and responsible for that and the team that's developing the software. And, you know, what I saw the most sophisticated customers doing, the Netflix of the world and the Airbnbs of the world, was saying, no, these best practices suck. We're going to write our own software. We're going to put five developers on this and we're going to automate as much of this problem as, as we can. But the problem was that they would always build it you know, just for themselves and all their own in-house tool. There was no uh, okay. broader platform in the market to enable okay. that sort of automated operations for the other 99.9% of businesses. Okay. Um, so what sort of time frame is this? So this like, was... When was this, like, this is 2000 sort of... 14 or something? Uh, actually, uh, AWS got into the machine learning game quite late. We were brought in in 2016, uh, the company I was at, Marianas Labs, into AWS okay. to uh, build up the SageMaker team. And, and you're a data scientist? Yeah, I was actually, yeah. you know, if you look at my Google Scholar by training, I was supposed to be getting a PhD in machine learning and the team I was working with that got pulled into AWS you know, they basically said I could get my PhD while getting all my research funded by Amazon, which was attractive at the time. But it's not quite yeah. how it worked out. So did yeah, you I ever end that. up? Did you get your PhD though? No, no, I, I got enough papers. You don't need though, it you, now, right? Yeah, uh, yeah I, I got enough papers though <laughs> that I'm sure I could I could pick one of them and and go and, and defend yeah. it. But no, I did yeah. not officially get any stamps. Yeah. Okay. That that's that's great. Um. Okay. So. You're you're at AWS at the startup. You're you're seeing this problem. At, at what point did you say I need to go off and build this as a as a platform? Yeah. So I mean, we had actually launched SageMaker uh, at reInvent 2017 and rolling into 2018. Um, Is that something you founded? The SageMaker. Yeah, I was part of the team that that launched SageMaker and a number of other services. I actually was involved in the early days in SageMaker. I actually wrote the PRFAQ for Deep Lens, which was part of that broader ecosystem, and it was the first IoT device that AWS ever launched. And just to give you a little context, the PRFAQ is essentially the internal Amazon I, I don't pitch. know what that is. What does that mean? Um, it's the internal Sorry. Amazon pitch, essentially. So I was the one who led that project within the broader SageMaker team uh, and worked a lot with Intel and our other hardware partners. Uh, like Nvidia, So that's that's so. A, that's AWS's machine learning uh, platform or something? Is that what you Yeah, said? SageMaker is the machine okay. learning platform, uh, and they okay. have a number of so other like services within the, that. It's like Amazon's version of TensorFlow or something like that? Kind of. Uh, it's it's more of their you know managed service uh, version. Okay. So uh, they will actually host notebooks that have you know TensorFlow or PyTorch or MXNet, which was the Apache um, deep learning framework that we worked on uh, within that system. Uh, and that's okay. sort of the product that we worked on, along with all the managed machine learning APIs and things like DeepLens that fit into that broader machine learning ecosystem that we were trying to really build from scratch in 2017 at AWS. Okay, and what was um, did what happened to SageMaker got sort of absorbed into um, AWS? Oh no, it, actually, you guys acquired SageMaker. Well, SageMaker came out of the acquisition of the team that I was part of. Uh, we actually okay. built that, but SageMaker was developed entirely by that team and obviously who we hired within Amazon. Uh, and now it's actually okay. one of their flagship products. In fact. Uh, I'm going off this uh, this evening to reinvent, and I would say the the big theme of this conference, uh, one of them, is 
uh, machine learning. This is the big AWS conference. And that machine mm -hmm. learning is all kind of based around SageMaker and SageMaker products. So that team has just grown and grown and grown since I've left. Okay. And those products have really, I think, taken a big hold within the market. Okay. And something you obviously know very well. Yeah, I, I would say yeah. so. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about um, your transition from SageMaker to Ar Archetta. When did that happen? And like, why? What was the core problem that you made you jump from the one project to to starting Archetta? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, my time at Amazon was great. I had a ton of great mentors and support within the business. But, you know, after we launched the initial uh, SageMaker platform and the uh, number of services around it, you know, like Deep Lens, which I was deeply involved in, and reInvent 2017, um, going into 2018, I saw this continued pain from our customers around using these services, especially the ones that needed to use very expensive GPUs and, you know, other uh, high, high intensity compute in their uh, workflows on those systems. Uh, and I constantly ran into this cost problem, cost management problem. Um, and, you know, sometime in mid 2018, I realized that, you know, frankly, talking to a lot of the teams internally, the incentives weren't necessarily aligned to solve this for customers. And the world in which customers li were living was one where they were naturally on all of these tasks going to be crossing services that lived both in AWS, but outside of AWS. I think you might have heard this even, you know, if you're not deeply in the cloud world, that a lot of uh, organizations these days are going multi-cloud and going, you know, multi-service. So your database mm -hmm. is no longer going to be an Amazon database uh, sitting right next to an EC2 Amazon uh, compute box. You might have something like Snowflake that runs, you know, anywhere. And that yeah. might be plugged into your compute stack. And what I realized was within Amazon, solving for the cost predictability problem, the cost management problem, uh, was going to require going beyond just the services and best practices that the uh, you know the cost teams and the uh, cloud management teams internally were offering to customers. It required a solution that was natively you know multi-vendor, multi-cloud. It required a solution that made a lot of very strong. Um, sort of uh, prescriptions in terms of how customers were actually supposed to go and manage this instead of saying, hey, go just have a human review this. It required mm -hmm. to automate it um, something a lot stronger than what the teams within the AWS cloud management division were comfortable uh, trying to build mm -hmm. for customers. So what I realized were there were just natural limits, especially with an organization of that size with so many competing incentives uh, to try and solve this problem optimally for customers. So when I started to realize that in 2018, uh, I actually got together with a number of AWS salespeople who I was close with and said, look, you know, I have this idea. I think, you know, it's very clear that our uh, our side of the world on the product side and the engineering side is not going to solve this. Let me get in front of some customers. Let me talk to them, you know, small customers, and, and let me test this. Uh, and mm -hmm. actually, I started the uh, kind of discovery of what actually made sense to build. Uh, really doing that using those existing relationships while you were still working with Amazon and they were fine with that. They, they were fine with that Well look talking to customers is part of the job. Yeah, right? and, yeah, and yeah. this was actually while I was still trying to figure out could we do this internally honestly? 
Um, yeah. So, you know, when I realized that the customer's solution, you know, the solution that customers wanted was really askew from what Amazon would be okay building, I decided, hey, you know, it makes sense in this case now to, to uh, really off. spin out and, yeah. and actually take those customer conversations I had, continue those relationships and actually go and, and build something for them. You know, take that bias yeah. for action and see if we can solve this problem on a small scale with customer spending, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, before going to the customers that I was comfortable interacting with for launching SageMaker, who was spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, so I gather you're the CTO. I'm the CEO, actually. Oh, you're the CEO. Okay, as well. So, so tell me about how. What was the team? Um, what was the team when you when you spun off? Was it just you? You, because you're you call yourself the co-founder. What, tell me about the the other founder. When did they come in? Yeah. So actually, you know, early, early days, it was just me when we were just ideating. And uh, yeah, as yeah. soon as we got to trying to build something, you know, I do have a background in, in writing code. So I was able to get, you know, I'd say maybe 20, 30% of the way there. But a lot of what we do is we solve for this incredibly complex financial complexity. In fact, uh -huh. uh, you know, we actually love to tout this stat that uh, saying, hey, if I know exactly what I want to commit to in the Amazon ecosystem and how long I want to commit to it, you know, even solving for how many dollars I should pay up front for those resources is an NP hard problem. So embedded mm -hmm. in what we're doing, there's an incredibly large number of complex computational problems, not to mention complex forecasting problems and you know predictive modeling problems on the machine learning side. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was really where I hit my limits. And uh, my CTO, who was actually my brother, uh, I brought him in. He was at uh, DE Shaw earlier. Uh, doing quantitative finance, and then Uber, where he was on the team, again, doing quantitative finance and actually setting prices. And in terms of people who I was, you know, very close with at the time, who were able to solve and break down and automate incredibly complex financial problems, uh, you know, Nikhil, my brother, and now our CTO, was just the perfect person. So you know, as that's, I built out the great. framework, yeah, yeah and, and yeah. came up with like And you knew, wall. you obviously knew his skill set fit right in there. It's, of course. It's, it sounds like it's really just the alga, the core algorithm that you were trying to trying to get 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 solved in the machine learning part that was going through the yeah. data. Well, a core algorithm. the data there was, five or six really complex ones that, you know, it was essentially okay. a blank space in the code, you know, to do, figure this out. And I think it was just so natural that Nikhil with his background, you know, doing futures trading at DE Shaw and actually pricing things like your Uber rides in South America, he has a really keen mind for those sorts of problems. Uh, okay. And, you know, luckily was able to come in and solve those pretty quickly so we could get it into the market and start testing. Okay, that's great. And so, uh, at this point, did you need to take on any any funding, or is it just you guys just coding, putting together this alg these algorithms? Yeah, you know, it was us coding. I was in San Francisco at the time, so uh, basically running through a little bit of savings uh, to pay for a shared place. On so you rent. left. You left. Uh, you were up in Seattle. You went back. You went down to San Francisco. Is that right? I was actually in of... San Francisco, funnily enough, for the. Um, AWS experience. I was living there uh, through that whole time because the startup uh, that was got pulled into AWS um, was acquired in that was actually based out of Palo Alto. So uh -huh. uh, I was I was in the Bay Area actually the whole time I was at Amazon, and then even after as I was working on this, a lot of the customers uh, that we had early on were actually you know startups in the Bay Area that our AWS contacts introduced us into. Okay. And how was that in the beginning? Was it like, um, how was it leaving your job? Was it, were you, were you little sort of, was it, uh, 
little dubious that you were on or would you, did you know like this is the right move i mean how was it the transition yeah i mean obviously i think you needed to have a plan and it was a bit dubious um luckily for me i was basically working in the same ecosystem so i didn't really miss a beat i was still talking to the same people interacting with a lot of the same customers which was nice uh -huh. um you know that being said i did have to have a plan right so i think uh you know both me and my brother had a plan in terms of a time bound to, to see if this would work, to see uh, you know, if customers would take this up, if we'd get them logging back in and actually using the platform, uh, and if we could actually validate that this worked. So yeah. I think that was a little nerve wracking to be on a timer immediately uh, versus being in an enterprise. So were you working? Were you working your main? You were still at AWS and you were doing no, this on I, the side, or you left? I completely left you, at this point. Okay, you left, so you were like full time on this. I, I'm trying to imagine like back in those days, like um, if if you were like, how would you do your prospecting? You would come. I guess you knew all of the contacts, but you're like, hey, are you having this problem? I want to know exactly what you like. If you're yeah. going to explain this problem like in one or two sentences, you know, how do you do that? Because it doesn't sound like you've been able to do that. And I certainly wouldn't be able to to say what you solve in one or two sentences. Well, I mean, I think very simply when I was going to customers early on, you know, the question was, are you buying long-term commitments for AWS resources? And do you think you're getting a good deal on it? And how much time okay. are you spending on that? And they know what you're, they know, because I haven't done that, they knew what you're talking about. If I you get see. in front of the right person, which is actually yeah. why early on, I went to my contacts in the AWS sales team and said, look, you know, tell me who your people are in your book of 5,000, 6,000 commercial customers who complain to you constantly about cost and buying and managing these commitments. And then yeah. when they commitments, the when you say that you're like you're talking about sort like like GPU and all that. It's, yeah, so like a like sort of Azure 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 usage and because I know that's very expensive. Yeah, so so really, what you know just for a GPU machine, say uh, yeah. what I'm talking about fundamentally is you can click a button and rent a GPU machine per second from Amazon over the internet. But the rate yeah. is going to be the highest rate that you pay if you're just yeah, saying, yeah. I need it okay. for the next second, for the next second. Now, if you yeah, say, yeah. I need it for the next year, well, they're going to give you a good discount. You do have to pay okay. for it for that year. You might have to pay some money up front, but they'll give you a good discount if you use that commitment contract. If you say three okay. years, they're going to use it, they'll give, give you a better, better discount. But and so the, this is a the very problem arises because problem. it's a startup. They don't really know what, the, and as the app grows or whatever the platform grows, they don't really know what they're getting themselves into. That's the problem that essentially that you're solving, correct? Correct. They don't know or okay. get, what they're getting themselves into, but also the complexity of the number of contracts. You know, there's 36, 37 different contracts per, um, you know, per machine, per machine type that you can actually okay. select. So even if you know exactly what you're going to use, navigating the pricing complexity to two gigabytes of different contracts that you could potentially purchase for ec2 resources you know that's just one example that's incredibly time consuming and complex and also it's something yeah. that honestly you shouldn't be doing in an excel spreadsheet because embedded in trying to match contracts to usage is a number of np hard problems which excel is not going to solve for you right okay so that totally makes sense and so and that's why you're saying they they were spending four hours a week trying to do this in excel so yeah. you knew that this was a big problem. And so primarily, is it like the CFO that's doing this, these computations? Or who, no, actually, who have you found? Often in smaller businesses, uh, it's folks on the engineering team. And this is, this is where a lot of the inefficiency comes. These people are not yeah. compensated on saving money. Uh, they're highly risk averse. 
Uh, so they're obviously in, in many ways going to take the easy route, the low risk route, and leave a ton of money on the table because they're not financial engineers. Um, yeah. you know, they're paid to keep the site running. Uh, and yeah, this, yeah. for some reason, gets shifted left into their domain. Now, more sophisticated yeah. customers, uh, they'll have FP&A or finance be a stakeholder, uh, and actually, in many cases, the final approval on these commitment purchases. And you know, a lot of modern teams now, especially when they're at the scale of a few million dollars plus a year uh, being spent on cloud, they'll actually spin up dedicated cross-functional teams called FinOps teams that cross engineering and finance uh, and actually make a lot of these decisions. And you know, that's kind of their only job. Uh, so you're seeing some sophistication evolve around this uh, and some new mm -hmm. job titles to actually deal with this specific problem. You know, that being said, it's still very early and you know, we see everything in terms of you know, who's managing this from individual engineers and SREs all the way to you know, dedicated heads with teams of three to four people underneath them. Okay, and would you say generally we're talking we're we're talking about SaaS companies? Well, yeah, I guess SaaS like company sort of or airline because big cloud user, frankly. Okay, so. okay, that makes yeah, yeah. Okay, um, okay. So you're you and your brother are getting going, and um, at what point? Like, tell me, tell me about when the MVP was finished and onboarding your first customer. How, how did that go? I mean, yeah. did you did you take any pre commitments or anything like that? So no pre-commitments, actually. Uh, what we did was, you know, we had a number of customer interviews, uh, you know, March through the summer, and really alongside those customer interviews, built out the MVP, uh, which really had to deal with, um, you know, commitment automation. So once you already have the commitments in your inventory, how do I make sure that we can resell and exchange those in an optimal way? And then making your first purchase. You know, a lot of customers don't even purchase commitments because they're, uh, you know, like I was saying before, they're the intimidated. Is, they're intimidated. Yeah. They're so risk averse. And, you know, this is an SRE. Yeah. Like, they're so terrified of finance already. What happens if they yeah. mess this up? So they'll, you know, fine. Status quo will spend 35% more, 40% more, 70% more in some cases. So yeah. those are really the two problems that we identified. Uh, okay. And then, so you have a dashboard that I'm just trying to visualize. You literally said you could save, you know, you know, whatever, 15,000 by doing it this way. Is that, is that sort of like the dashboard? Is that essentially what, what, yeah. what the first prototype did? I would say largely, you know, even today, right? What we try and do is we try and come in and say, look, here's an itemized list of what you could be doing to increase the savings rate. If you automate your exchanges and purchases, this is how much money was historically left on the table. If you purchase with this more optimal portfolio based on your predictive usage, uh, this is what uh, how much money we can get you back on an annual basis, right? If you and what kind of numbers are we we talking about here? Like um, for your first few customers, so let's say yeah, someone spending... that's spending like you know a hundred thousand on cloud services, how much were you able to save them in the beginning? Now it obviously varies in terms of where customers are today, but I would say with a lot mm -hmm. of those early customers, if they're spending a hundred thousand, we'd be taking off thirty five to forty five thousand. Um, of that so fairly okay. significant because again yeah. a lot of these so, folks are yeah. starting at zero yeah yeah okay and how do you price that in the beginning what were you saying okay i'm going to save you 40 this but this is what my cost is going to be yeah so you know in the beginning we played around with a few different models frankly we had the thing ready yeah. uh over the summer we actually went back to a lot of those customers that we talked to early on and said hey here's solution number one um we're going to take a cut of the savings which obviously uh to a small co company like that 
make some sense. But what we started to realize as we went uh, to more and more of these kind of small, mid-sized businesses spending a few hundred thousand to a few million dollars a year on cloud and signing them up for the service was, you know, what what was really difficult about this problem is, you know, and we're hearing it today in the interview, is the complexity of, you know, the financial yeah. engineering here. Uh, yeah, yeah. So even trying to make clear to, you know, obviously the stakeholders who know the problem, but all the other stakeholders in the account, uh, you know, like the, the CIO or the CFO who might be the final sign off on the check on where the savings are coming from and what the savings are, you know, that ended up being a complex education process. So yeah. what we ended up thinking was, look, everyone in the market today is saying we'll take some percentage of savings or some percentage of cost if we're going to go and optimize your cloud. That's what a lot of the consultants do, for example, uh, who mm -hmm. I worked with at AWS. And as a SaaS platform, we actually thought about you know this problem as an opportunity to do something different. Instead of trying to help educate people on how we're saving and then taking a cut of those savings, uh, mm -hmm. we said, look, why don't we just price basically based on the amount of data we're ingesting and processing for customers like other SaaS apps that are you know in the monitoring and observability space do we can come in and essentially provide massive savings lift for a fraction of the cost of the incumbents but you know in year two in year three in year four uh we'll actually because you know this is an automated solution this is a continuous it's solution growing. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll actually have a much higher chance of staying in the account because it's not about what can I save you going from unoptimized to optimized in year one. It's about how can I change the process so that you're getting dividends all along the way. You're constantly in an optimal state. Uh, and for that, you know, we have to take a long term view on the platform and not just extract all the rents up front, but really provide a, you know, a solution that is essentially a fifth the cost of incumbents uh, can provide more value and is not adversarially priced because the problem uh -huh. with taking a percentage of cost or savings is we in many ways you know penalize customers uh for for things like um you know moving to spot instances or uh you know doing things like growing uh certain segments of their business or increasing r d spend uh, or moving to you know larger more efficient machines which are things that you know we don't think inherently we should be penalizing customers for with our pricing. So there's a lot of nuance mm -hmm. and complexity um, yeah. when you price in that way that we quickly realized we just wanted to get away from. So you mentioned incumbent, but as I understood, I don't imagine there was anything else out there that was doing that. When you say incumbent, you're talking about the guy doing the spreadsheets? Yeah, or, I mean, frankly, the consulting firm who comes in and does the spreadsheets uh, okay. for you. Okay, consulting right? firm, okay. Yeah. Um, so that that's a big one. And then, you know, there were some platforms that helped with cost governance. But the problem there, and this is really why we started the company in the first place, uh, I introduced those co those companies to a lot of our customers at Amazon. And the problem mm. was these are just visibility tools, systems of record. They didn't have the advanced planning. They didn't have predictability built in. They were essentially an alarm bell that would ring when something went wrong instead of a, uh, a tool to help you plan and then automate the execution of okay. uh, you know your, your cloud strategy fundamentally. When you say automated execution, there's actually running the algorithm. It's going sorting through all of this, and it's it chooses the correct contract at the right time. It it does, Is and that... then it actually goes to Amazon and purchases it, or exchanges it, or resells it on your behalf. So 
you're really okay. getting that full life cycle. Now, obviously, you know, another thing we learned early on is, especially when there's an SRE, they want full control, top to bottom. Yeah, they don't want of, this thing going, yeah. They so, at least see, see like some kind of transaction history of what it's exactly. doing or Exactly. So what we did was we obviously put in the transaction history early on, but had this other thing called human in the loop that we made a, a tenant of a lot of these automation systems where we could start the customers off with... Um, you know, a mode in which making suggestions you know, the alarm, or something the, it would yeah. make a suggestion. The alarm bell would ring, and then it's just a simple button: "Hey, execute this or edit it, uh, or you know, obviously ignore it." Um, so we gave them sort of control there to help them get comfortable with the automation. And what we found okay. was, you know, after month one, month two, they just flip on the automation because they got comfortable enough with the system. They, yeah, that makes sense. And was your was your um, algorithm learning by the actions that they do? Was it sort of customized to um, the actions that they would do to yeah, on was, like a per account basis almost? Well, even more granular than that, uh, the way that we think about it is – uh, every segment, you know, you're not running just one application in your infrastructure, especially at scale. You have potentially multiple applications, multiple teams, multiple projects. So mm -hmm. what we try and do is we help customers first segment out all of those and label the data within their account in terms of where costs are coming from, who owns it, what are the business initiatives, et cetera, tied to that. Uh, and mm -hmm. then we actually help them forecast for each of those segments, teams, projects, products, based on that forecast the underlying usage out you know one year plus and then based on those forecasts those really granular forecasts we then have the algorithm uh build these commitment baskets and then as those um you know individual teams products projects change over time we have the algorithm actually adapt uh reforecast and then uh, actually optimize against that uh, you know, new forecast. This is all happening continuously and happening in a very granular manner. So uh, mm. what we try and do is obviously far more advanced than what is there um, in the market today, which is just saying, hey, you know, here's what you spent and here's who's spending it. We're trying to really build a predictive model and make this a, you know, a much more uh, predicted, uh, you know, predictive um, system versus a reactive system. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, when you launched the product first with your brother, um, how was it received? So, I mean, the, the early customers, especially I think the ones that we were going after in that commercial space, they, they really loved it because a lot of these folks had, you know, no one doing this or they had, you know, half a head or a quarter of a head, you know, an SRE with a uh -huh. part time job working on this. So essentially having, um, you know, and again, obviously early days, we were very consultative alongside the platform. We essentially were, were running it on their behalf. So having a full, you know, FinOps team that's sitting yeah. there uh, kind of doing it. For, so you were man, sort of man, you. you're almost acting like a consultant yourself. You're doing this for them at, say, a fifth of the cost. And so they're very yeah, happy I mean, obviously we'd use the platform to do it. Right? Yeah. But, I but think you're trying idea. to use it so that and you're learning more from the, you know, how the customers would expect it to behave and kind of manually doing stuff that you would know in the future you're going to try and automate. Yeah, in the future we wanted it to be self-service, but I think to get yeah. there, you know, the first five, ten engagements, we just wanted to sit there either, you know, early on because it was 2019, you know, 2019 at that point um, yeah. in the room or, uh, you know, over Zoom kind of later on when we'd raised our seed round in 2020. Uh, you know, we wanted to sit there with, every new customer every new feature and and walk through it with them and see where the hiccups were where the you know pauses and starts were 
to try mm-hmm. and engineer around that and make it as smooth a process as possible. So at the end of the day, we can make that feature, that workflow, that problem solution self-service to those customers. Oh, okay. And how, and again, I want to go back to the pricing because it sounds like it would be difficult to price. How was the pricing in the beginning? Do you remember what that first contract was? Did you make them sign for two years or anything like that? Yeah, no, we signed them up for a year. I think actually even now all of our contracts are generally standardized on, on one year. And okay. what we what we did at those early days was we took a percentage of savings, right? Okay, um, you mentioned that. Was that. For the fir- and then first three or four yeah. contracts, and okay. then we pivoted after you know the learning that I talked to you about um, uh-huh. to this this On model usage, where we more like usage. Where, yeah, we basically said, hey, how much data are you sending us? How many machine hours? How many different machine types uh, yeah. are you sending us? Uh, logs for let's stick you in a flat band and then just give you one flat rate and what we found especially because we were getting into more conversations with finance people was that became a differentiator against our competition uh, who are always taking a percentage and you know especially if they were doing doing you know work month over month they'd take a percentage of whatever that last month's bill was so instead of making the bill more predictable uh, and quelling the the variance that you know finance teams hate in in their billing uh, they would actually make it worse. They'd layer on another 5% variance or whatever percentage variance to that bill. Uh, so we yeah. found that that was actually a great selling point for us uh, as we okay. made that pivot. Okay. And so, for example, like what would what, 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 like bottom end was like 2000 a month and it goes like in, in those days, um, I'm just trying to get yeah. a gauge like so, what, what your you cash know, with flow the smaller customers, there. yeah, early days with like those customers uh, that are spending, you know, Half a million was probably kind of the the modal uh, small startup customer that we were working with. Uh, mm-hmm. They probably spend you know seven fifty to fifteen hundred with us per month just on the SaaS fees. Uh, and okay. then you know what happened in early twenty twenty was or rather late twenty nineteen early twenty twenty uh, was we created another SKU that we were essentially able to sell them. And I hinted at mm-hmm. it earlier in the interview, but. Uh, it really had to do with the fact that now we had this automated system doing the exchanging on the back end and the purchasing on the front end. Um, and what we were able to do, because a lot of this was automated and we had high degrees of certainty of when our customers were going to be able to purchase uh, and have demand for different contract types, we were then able to say, hey, you know, for some of these contracts that you're purchasing, if you don't use them, we'll actually take the risk of taking them right out of your account and putting those commitments to pay Amazon on our books. And, you know, that essentially is an insurance model that then we were able to sell a la carte on top of that base SaaS contract. Uh, so that was something that obviously as we got more scale, we were able to open up because, you know, what the way we make that work is we actually take those contracts that we, you know, buy back from customers uh, and then actually sell them to other customers as their purchases come up. And because they're automated in our system, we're able to have a high degree of certainty in terms of what the future demand is for contracts. So you're the is, is essentially you're sort of buying. It's, it sounds like you're almost sort of like a market maker or something. That's you're exactly acting it. in between, and you're buying these contracts for yourself and splitting them up between your customers. Is that sort is that that's exactly it? And you know the early deals were all sort of figuring out the SaaS rate. Uh, you know, in late 2018 through 2019, and then as we got to the stage of like five, six, seven customers who had tons of purchases you know coming in every uh month every other month there's like a pool you're building a pool sort we of built it. our pool that, exactly. and you're really more the cut you were the customer then at this point 
for for AWS because it's coming through you. Is that correct? Well, actually, you're sort what, of the customer the with model, AWS. The unique model is instead of being a reseller uh, through uh -huh. AWS, we actually sit within their existing AWS account. The customer has the relationship with Amazon or Azure in this okay. case, which we also support, or or Google. Uh, and what we're doing is we're just using things like the resale market uh, that you have in Amazon, for example, for reserved capacity and guaranteeing liquidity there. Uh, it's a very yeah. illiquid market. Uh, so essentially, we're using the existing primitives to, mm -hmm. um, you know, layer on this service to a customer's account without having them go through the pain of changing their billing relationship with the cloud vendor. Is this this sounds like something that your brother was probably being able to spot because of his futures background <laughs> exactly. and experience? Is that right? That's exactly. So it was it. really totally trans translatable to go from from that futures market where you have this excess capacity and to shift it. Now I get it why it would make sense for the customer, but how do you benefit from that? Like, what's do, you know what do you what do you get out of that aside well, from you know adding more value to the to the client? Yeah, well, in adding more value to the client, you know, what we're doing on our side to make sure that, you know, whatever period we have to hold those contracts in, we're not, you know, basically burning money is we actually charge premiums, almost like an insurance company, right, uh, okay. to, to those customers for de-risking, insuring okay. essentially those contracts. So we make a little okay. bit of revenue. It obviously pales in comparison to the incremental savings that customers are getting from going uh, from okay. something that's so it's mostly not committed, value committed. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's exactly. mostly a value add, and I and from what I'm hearing, it sounds like nobody else would be doing that. Well, the problem, right, is that we had to get customers to tell us when they were going to purchase in advance. We needed to solve the mm -hmm. SaaS part of the model first. We needed to mm -hmm. get that workflow, that automated workflow, adopted. So we actually had customers, you know, not only giving us high degrees of certainty around when there's going to be future demand for specific contracts. Uh, but we also needed customers to be comfortable purchasing through us so we could sell those contracts in the first place. So without that SaaS model in place that was really innovative and automation first mm -hmm. and, and new to the market, we were never going to be able to unlock this second thing uh, that, mm -hmm. you know, really okay. in, in 2020 as we uh, took off with the mid-market, uh, opened the door to us going into large enterprises. Mm -hmm. Tell me about... Um the moment or the time when you realized that you were really onto something and like when you guys were able to start growing, like when the story was really sort of accepted by your clients, like walk me through that time period, like what was going on in the company. Was it still just you and your brother or how, how did, how did that evolve? Yeah. I mean, I think it was largely me and my brother when, you know, when we had certainty that we had something there and we were going to be able to go and to the next level, raise a seed round, and actually grow the team. Uh, it was 2019. We had a number of kind of early. What customers. kind of revenues were you? You were sort of at twenty thousand then, probably. I think below that, I think something like, you okay. know, it was like. Was 10, it enough 12, for you guys 000. to sort of? Were you guys able to survive, or is it we still living survive. off your team? Ten, okay. ten, twelve thousand, generally able to survive at that point, um, and you know we. Actually, we're still working largely with the mid-market and through my Amazon connection still to get those new leads. So we're mm -hmm. finding some repeatability with these commercial customers there. 
uh, and we were like, hey, maybe there is something with these commercial customers. But what happened in uh, kind of October was, and again, this is actually through another Amazon contact, we were starting to get introduced to much larger customers. Actually, we had conversations with folks like, you know, Datadog, and we had conversations with folks like PagerDuty um, mm-hmm. in, in October, November. And there was genuine interest from those teams that we were talking to, you know, even mm-hmm. with the state of our product, you know, being fairly immature, especially for that scale where you have uh, dedicated teams to it. Um, you know, we we saw that there were unique things that we were doing that these large folks just weren't able to do or weren't willing to invest the number of developer hours to go and build. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously the dollar opportunity there is much larger, right? You know, we're yeah. signing customers that were hundreds of thousands of dollars to maybe a million a year in spend. Now, these customers were 30, 40, 100 million plus uh, in terms yeah. of spend. So the opportunity was just massive. And yeah. as we looked at the business we had and the business we could have and the interest there, we're like, look, this this is something that, you know, is not going to be kind of a, you know, consultative, con- commercial, you know, large scale of uh, customer base sale. This could be a much more targeted enterprise product and one that uh, could obviously provide a ton of value at that stage, but also have a much higher kind of average revenue per user in the six figures plus, um, which is really, I think, the opportunity that we got excited about. Uh, and so yeah. in 2019, end of 2019, early 2020, I actually hit the road um, with the interest and kind of the LOIs from these large customers and then the revenue we have from these commercial customers um, to try and uh, raise our seed round. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner.